0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Airways Podcast. I'm Rohan Anand, one of the co-founders and co-editors of this podcast, co-host, I should say. And I'm joined by Vinay Baskara, my other co-founder, co-host, co-editor, uh, and Helwing Villamizar. Uh Vinay, you've just gotten back from traveling overseas. How are you adjusting back to being in this good old country right as the government shuts down? And yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, candidly, I think that the way that government shutdowns happen in the US means that I think a lot of people don't see it happening day to day unless you are like in a family that is affected by it, or you, um, you know, you need like something approved by a government agency or something like that. But, um, you know, day to day, I think most people don't really see that happen so um, that's always interesting to observe where it gets a lot of coverage in the press but it it probably doesn't affect people's day-to-day lives um, as much other than the the slow degradation of what it means when you say the full faith and credit of the um, United States government But that's neither here nor there Um, yeah
0: yeah well it's funny I think our our podcast was on hiatus during the most recent government shutdown which took place in late 2018 early 2019 so this podcast was on hiatus. So, if things go in that direction, you know, it could be a potential topic to speak about the airline and aviation impact of a government shutdown in the United States. But yeah, certainly. To be fair,
1: uh, we've been on a lot of hiatuses. So, it's it's not really yeah. <laughs> unique to. Um, no, I, I had an awesome trip through Japan. Um, though I, I probably have to turn my AvGeek card back in because I did not fly on any of the wide body domestic um, flights, in part because the person I was traveling with was like let's just take the shinkansen and then there was one day in particular where you know we were going from kobe back to tokyo which is a you know it's about a four-ish hour train journey with a couple of connections and my thing was like hey the the flight from itami airport in osaka up to haneda is an hour and so instead of leaving at 9 a.m in the morning and burning the entire day we can leave at 1 p.m and be there at the same time um and it was not persuasive. Uh, so I didn't <laughs> get to fly on one of ANA's uh, 787 Dreamliners, uh, which was a little disappointing. But but overall, um, no, Japan, Japan is awesome. Japan has incredible food. Um, it has incredible culture. Not that we really experienced much of it. preferring to just uh, eat, drink, sleep, walk around, and sort of rinse and repeat. Um, but... But yeah, it was um, it was a lot of fun. But I am glad to be back. Uh, you guys had an awesome episode in my stead, um, so
0: yeah, just glad to be back. Yeah, and Halloween, how about you? ¿Cómo estás?
2: Uh, we're okay, todo bien. Having uh, a good week. Yeah, I have nothing to say. I, I actually just had a really massive headache. It just went away, so. Thank well, that's because
0: they're talking about airlines and getting to look into a camera and see the beautiful faces of both Vinay and uh, and me. So, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah, I just want to say for the record that it's good that we're not on YouTube maybe yet because um, <clears throat> the aesthetics here are <laughs> are far from <laughs> yeah. compelling. Yeah. Um, I, al- I also think it's pretty funny because, you know, over time, you and Hellwing are going to start to have more and more of a conversation in Spanish. I'm just going to be over here, like, you know, re- again, rehashing the seven words that I re- remember from high school Spanish class and just like, Forlornly, you know, ¿Dónde está la biblioteca?
0: Um, Right. um, Well, with with that underway, we're going to go ahead and actually dive into our first topic of the day. And that is with regards to not a country south of the border from the United States, but rather north of the border and across the Atlantic uh, by the announcement that Air Canada is going to add the 787-9 to its fleet type. 787-10, 787-10, 787-10, 787-10, they already right. fly a bunch of 787-9s. Yes, and I've flown on one myself, I apologize. So the assignment an agreement with Boeing for 18 of these jets, and they're going to join the elite club of several airlines that happen to have a version of the Dash 8, Dash 9, and Dash uh, 10. To my knowledge, the ones that fit into that kind of little, you know, three-way group are American Airlines and all Nippon. Uh, and Singapore Airlines? No, maybe not. I can't remember. But point being is that these are going to well, be 18 so Singapore Airlines,
1: I believe, if you sort of include Scoot, which is their low-cost subsidiary, I believe Scoot operates... Both seven eight seven nines and seven eight seven eights, and then Singapore Airlines, the mainline sort of world's best
0: airline brand, operates the ten. So I I, I think that yeah. qualifies. Yeah, as well as Qantas for that matter, because Qantas has the seven eight seven eights through Jetstar, or or Jetstar. But Does Qantas
1: have tens?
0: They're ordering tens, I think, and I think that those tens will be, um, you know, part of oh. the, as we talk about the. Oh. The um, A330 replacement, really—that's kind of where a lot of people believe this Air Canada announcement came from. Where you know you got 18 wide bodies of 787-10 uh, jets that are going to be also very easily utilized on routes intra-Canada, routes from the Pacific, like Vancouver to uh, Tokyo and Seoul in high season, uh, maybe even China if possible, assuming the Russia situation isn't a consideration um definitely from the east coast of canada to europe uh very popular routes like montreal to paris or toronto to frankfurt and even maybe even from a toronto and montreal to sao paulo or to rio janeiro or santiago because they got the belly capacity i also think that with air canada too the Airbus a330 300s this is going to be one of the retirement aircraft for them the a330 uh has been with Air Canada for a long time, about as long as it's had 747s as well as the Airbus A340s, aka the, the four-holers, as I like to call them. And these 777-300s, both in the high-density uh, version for Air Canada and the one that's a little bit more premium configured with um, more J-class seats and more W seats, uh, those aircraft are now you know, over a decade old and, again, can be very, very well-utilized Um, sort of as a sister aircraft to that 787-10 in terms of passenger volume, cargo volume, uh, flexing towards demand periods, while not adding that much cost and complexity to the fleet. In fact, it's very strategic because for Air Canada, it's going to actually allow them to become a lot more streamlined. They're losing essentially their wide body aircraft from Airbus and their aircraft type is basically now very pro- boeing in the wide body space and even in the narrow body space with the maxes and so taking those into consideration they got at least the airbus side for the uh 220 family uh and so all you're seeing is really and, and the
1: 321 xlr they have they the have the, the, the 220s and XLR. 321 xlrs and then you would figure eventually they will replace their remaining 319s 320s and 321 twenty-one COs um, with with Max Family Jets, because they have 10 additional options, I believe, um, which would replace a lot of that.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of those 319s have now been utilized on leisure routes operated by the low fare Rouge uh, kind of uh, subsidiary. They've kind of f- figured out how to effectively create a low cost operation within with aircraft that's already paid for. But key business routes, you know, you're seeing a lot of replacement of Air Canada. Um, uh, three two ones, or sorry, three or two twenties on on routes to the U.S. You know that are you know premium on an O and D perspective, while also being able to feed their uh transborder hubs. Then you also see the aircraft also on a lot of domestic routes within Canada. So it's allowing Air Canada to really be able to optimize its network. And so I guess the only other thing I have to say about the tens, other than like good move, Air Canada, like yeah, way to go.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I think more broadly, what you're seeing is that really this, the 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 mission that the 78710 was built for, or, or is like best positioned to um, to replace or to serve, is what I would describe that as that medium to medium to long haul kind of range. A, anywhere from about 2,500 nautical miles, right? to Or, or about 3,000-ish miles up to about 6,000, 7,000 miles. That is really the sweet spot. And it is the best aircraft in its sort of size class in its um in its economics in that range right it's more efficient than an a350 900 um you know or a 7879 because it's bigger than the nine and it's um the, the both the seven eight seven nine and the A 900 are more capable right they can carry more stuff and more passengers further but you don't need that extra sort of payload range capacity necessarily um when you can haul people really efficiently right so the, the a 330 replacement is really that sweet spot. And I think as you get across the next, let's say, 10 years, you're going to see more orders for the 10 because there's a lot of carriers, particularly in Asia, but also in Europe and in other parts of the world, that have relied on or have built out the A330-300 um, fleet and, and ordered those aircraft in the early 2000s because it was so efficient in those medium-haul Ranges and they figured once we can get enough scale there, we don't need to only rely on you know the three thirty two hundred or the triple seven, right? Like part of what you saw why the the A 330s history is really interesting because the A 300 is the first variant that's released, um, and so it gets a certain number of orders because of that. But very quickly, sort of between the late nineties and the early sort of early to mid two thousands, the three thirty two hundred, the smaller variant, which had a little bit more range, was the kind of the dominant part of that family, and then. As you got towards the back half of the the two the, thousands um, and into the twenty tens, you saw the three thirty three hundred pick back up because people realized just how efficient it was if you could fill the plane. Um, so you're seeing something very similar with the seven eight seven ten. The thing that's really interesting is if you look at how they use their 3300s right now. I just pulled up the schedule um, for October second, which is next week. Obviously, it's the fall, so you know there's some differences with, with how these aircraft might be used in the. Um, in the rest, you know, during the summer peak. But if you look at during the fall, those these aircraft are flying from Montreal to Barcelona, Frankfurt, Lisbon, Heathrow, Milan. A couple sort of rotation flights to Toronto, um, Toulouse, and Vancouver. Again, that's sort of the, you know, that 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 sort of transcontinental premium experience that a lot of a lot of carriers have invested in for for those kinds of flights. And then from Toronto, they're they're operating to Calgary, Lisbon, Madrid. Again, those rotations to Montreal. Munich, Vancouver, and Vienna. And then from Vancouver, they're just operating to you know Montreal and Toronto. Mm. I think the thing that's really interesting about the 78710 is, yeah, it's going to be awesome on those transatlantic routings from Toronto and Montreal. But the really interesting thing is it's also going to open up um, a lot of flying to the eastern half of Asia as well. Because Vancouver, yeah. just where it is on a map, Vancouver is really mm. well positioned where you got that 6,000, 7,000-mile range, you can use it to fly into Japan. You can use it yeah. to fly to Seoul. You can use it to fly to the east coast of, of China potentially if that market ever sort of recovers um, back towards a pre-pandemic trend. Yeah. So I think that's the really interesting thing is like they get an aircraft that's just as good, if not better, on some of the transatlantic stuff. Uh can certainly carry more cargo and more going to be more fuel efficient than the three thirty-three hundred. But unlike the three thirty-three hundred, you can really meaningfully use it from Vancouver. Um, on trans Pacific routing as well. So yeah. I, I think this was like a, a layup. Um, you know, the, the the biggest thing of working against this was just Air Canada's, I guess, general conservatism and placing new aircraft orders. But the minute they decided, hey, we want to replace the 33300, I think the 787 7, 10 was the like
0: natural choice. Yeah. Um, so I, look at how United has been able to use them pretty much in every hub, maybe minus Denver. Uh, you know, I know the 77 10 is used in Tokyo, it's used to Sao Paulo. And obviously to a lot of transatlantic markets, that's the same from Newark. That's the same from Dallas. And then from San Francisco. I actually
1: just flew on the 787-10 from, uh, from from Los Angeles to
0: Tokyo-Haneda.
1: Yeah, so I've literally seen this happen in real time. And I, it was great. It worked fine. Um, there right. wasn't any weird um, fuel constraints or, or, or whatever. So I, I I think it's great.
0: Well, and also now these same aircraft out of the West Coast, you, know, you see them doing LA to Tokyo. You see them doing San Francisco to Auckland. Um, I'm not so sure if Vancouver to Auckland or Vancouver to Sydney is within the range of the aircraft. It might be, um, but they certainly. Well, Qantas
2: uh, isn't Qantas also reportedly close to securing an order
0: for the seven
2: eight seven ten?
0: Yeah, they are. They are, but they don't have them in service yet. Okay. Um, yeah. KLM and I would say United, along with. Uh I guess the only other one that comes to the top of my mind would be potentially all nippon or Singapore or the ones that fly them long haul. Um <clears throat> as well, maybe. But that mm. that those are those are. Well there aren't
1: that many operators of the 78710 period, right? You've yes. got United, um, you've got I, uh, you've got Air, um, Singapore Airlines. Has, got Brit- British Airways does fly them. them I'd say transatlantic, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't think any of these carriers are going to fly them long haul, long haul
0: per se, right? Like, no, they don't you, have. The, even though
1: even though you think of you know trans-Pacific flying as like quote unquote long haul, LA to Tokyo is fifty five hundred miles, right? Right. right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the thing that, that is interesting is if you look at where they're using a seven eight seven nine from vancouver today they're using it to places like brisbane um that might still need to be a seven eight nine but they're using it to dublin you can use a seven eight seven ten there frankfurt against two star lines hubs that one's pretty easy uh, i think hong kong is probably on the edge of the range for the seven eight seven ten maybe not practical with, with fuel stuff um, say
0: bangkok singapore i don't see th-
1: that stuff no but then osaka kansai um very easily to the seven 8, 10 if if there's demand um Seoul and Cheon, again, uh, another... Well, I guess it's no longer going to be a Star Alliance hub. Shanghai, um, and then Zurich, and then you know, some of the other Asia-Pacific destinations are triple sevens. So,
0: yeah, definitely. Now, let's move across the Atlantic Ocean to talk about Air France, KLM, who also put in an order for the A350s. So Air France, KLM, placed this order earlier this week to add 50 A350s to renew their long-haul fleet, which is pretty significant. Um, one of the things that I hadn't really known about up until recently was that when it came to kind of separating the wide-body aircraft amongst the Air France KLM group, the 787s were largely delivered to KLM, and then the A350s largely went to Air France, um, and these KLM A350 orders were um, being essentially uh you know, sent to Air France, right? Whereas KLM was kind of sharing the A3, the 787s with Air France. So as far as I know right now, the KLM fleet is a little bit smaller than the um, Air France fleet. Um, commonality amongst them includes the Boeing 777, both the 200 and the 300ER series, uh, the 787, uh, and then the Airbus A330, both 200 and 300 series. Um, and so Air France has the E350 while KLM does not. But now it could potentially change. Um, I'm a little bit less, I guess, familiar with how the strategy evolves around the Air France-KLM planning decision, especially given what's coming up with amsterdam schiphol and the uh, withdrawal of a lot of those slots. Uh, so what are your thoughts on how Air France-KLM framed this decision? Get up to speed
1: on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Air France has been a huge fan of the A350, right? It's been a really big piece of um, their future plans. It's it's it coming in to replace the 777 200 yards ER, which I think makes a ton of sense for, for Air France. It's coming in to replace the A330-200s um, at Air France, which I think makes a little less sense given the sizable capacity jump. And the fact you probably would rather have the flexibility of a 787-9, um, it's obviously a really, really capable aircraft. The thing that's really interesting, though, is if you look at range from European hubs, you don't necessarily always need that much range, right? So so j- just just for context, right, a 787-10, set aside 787 for a second, but a 787 um, if you sort of just do a do a range map, right, so the longest flights by the 787 are about 6,500 or 6,300-ish 6, miles, right? That's kind of the... Longest currently scheduled flights, that's, you know, Chicago O'Hare to Tokyo United, that's Amsterdam out to Los Angeles and San Francisco on KLM, right? So you just look at that range and that, I guess, payload capacity. From Paris Charles de Gaulle, and Amsterdam's like, uh, you know, a couple feet down the street, so this range map works, you can get to pretty much every relevant destination that is feasibly possible to fly with a non-stop, um, except for I guess Singapore is just on the outside looking in. Buenos Aires is outside of range. Santiago is outside of range. Jakarta is outside of range. Um, and, and and Singapore is maybe outside of range. And I guess Manila, um, depending on how you view that as a destination. But that's it, right? Any other big airport you think of, Beijing is in range. Johannesburg is in range. Sao Paulo is in range. Lima is in range. The entire United States is in range. All of East Asia, all of India, um, all you know. South Korea, all of the Middle East. Like, most of the world with a seven eight seven ten, right, and with within its range parameters, right, um, you don't really need the extra capability of an A So The thing that's really interesting to me is that as a group, they're kind of going all in on the A three fifty nine hundred, right? Because um, and, and I guess to some extent there, there there's the potential to obviously upgrade some of those to A three fifty one thousand to replace a triple seven three hundred ER and maybe that's something that happens particularly because Air France has some of the older uh, 777 300ERs but if you ju- if if you just look at their stated mission right replacing A330s and 777 200ERs i don't know that this order actually makes as much sense because you don't need all that range if you're Air France KLM and and so why would you go with the A350 over the 787 um, you, know, you have similar numbers in your fleet. right? Between Air France and KLM, they've got about um, they've got 38 uh, or 33, I think, 787s, 23 at KLM, 10 at Air France, and then they have 22 850s. So it's not like a fleet commonality thing per se. Um, plus, you figure you could use the 850s to replace the 777-300ER, right? split across the 900 and the 1,000, and that's a mission that makes more sense. But yeah, t- to me, this one actually is less clearly sensible. Um, could be that Airbus made them a really good deal with pricing. Could be there was some political sort of influence um, or patriotism involved in the deal. Um, right.
2: right. I mean, because uh, it, the, the purchase will make Air France KLM the largest operator of the A3BFC? I believe so. They have 40 additional uh, purchase rights. So, S- S- so
1: Singapore Singapore Airlines has 63 um A350 900s in operation plus two um okay. to, to be delivered and then uh they have seven of the 900 ULRs so I think they that that gets them to 72 um Emirates has 50 on order <laughs> you, the the funniest thing is that United has one of the like biggest A350 and everyone is convinced that they are not taking delivery of them, no matter what. Um, so that, that, was, that one's pretty funny. Um, you figure Delta will eventually order more, but yeah, there, there's not... Um, I think they'll they'll be tied with Singapore, right? Because it's 50 plus 22. Um, oh no, I guess I guess they have 69 on order. So, so yeah, once all the aircraft are delivered, unless Singapore orders more, Air France KLM Group will be the largest operator of the Airbus A350 family. Um, here's, here's the thing, right? This is... Pure speculation. I want to state this in advance. I'm, I'm not. I'm not speaking with any degree of insider knowledge. There's no. That I'm not like. But if you just look at this from the outside, you can the a bit, right? KLM is in this constant pitched battle with the Dutch government, right? Like everyone, they're just they're just going at each other, right? The most recent iteration of this is that the Dutch government, in a again quixotic attempt to virtue signal about environmentalism, um, they've said that oh, we're gonna actually. Uh, basically switch our departure tax to a transfer tax. So if you fly into and out of Amsterdam airport on, on a transfer, let's say you're going from um, you know, Copenhagen to Amsterdam to Rome, right? It used to be you would only pay a 26 euro departure tax on the Amsterdam to Rome flight, So you pay 26 euros in taxes. Now, if you're transferring through Amsterdam, they're doubling that up. You have to pay that tax on both legs. Um, as I, Again, this is a announced policy, it may or may not go into effect, um, there's lots and lots of court battles happening. Um, you know, we can talk about how much of a, we can talk about how idiotic it is because they're shooting themselves in the foot in the development of KLM and, and Amsterdam's hub, we can talk about how it's not, actually not going to do anything for the environment because passengers are just going to fly through other hubs anyway. Um, we can talk about how it's particularly bad for KLM because they're actually the only of the big European carriers that, that really still makes intra-European connections work, and 52 euros mm. is a heck of a lot of tax to layer onto a connecting journey for an intra-Europe ticket. Set all of that aside. Point being, KLM, Air France KLM is in a constant battle with the Dutch government. Right? Now, obviously the Dutch government is not as sort of central to um Airbus as you know the French and and the uh, I guess the British were back in the day and the Germans. But for the you know, it, it's it, Airbus is still an EU champion, right? It is um part of the reason why they don't have a trade deficit with a lot of the world, right? So if you connect the dots a little bit, it's not maybe not maybe not entirely an accident. I'm just hypothesizing that Air France announces a big A three fifty order right as they're having this battle with the Dutch government. Because you know it's it's always helpful to put out a reminder. like even if nothing nefarious is happening, it's always helpful to put out a reminder, hey, we're a big contributor to EU employment, to EU manufacturing to the European economy, um, and to the local economy of these places. And so, you know, Chester, Chuckers, you decide. I think 787 probably made more sense for KLM, right?
2: Um, but... It's, inter- you know. it's interesting that you're saying that because I'm reading from Seeking Alpha that, like, just the KLM fleet, right? Boeing provides single-aisle solution, right? I think there are Embraers there, but there are no single-aisle Airbus, in the wide-body segment, Boeing is even more dominant uh, in the Air France wide-body They fleet. are
1: replacing their 737s with um, A320neo family aircraft,
2: right? So okay. So there are no maxes okay.
1: coming. So I, I think that's flipping. It looks like the wide-body fleet is flipping to Airbus planes. I, yeah, again, yeah. I, I don't think this is entirely an accident, right? Like like Air France KLM is probably the most subject of the big European carriers to Somewhere between apathy and active opposition from their local governments as compared to Britain, British Airways is a cha- is, is champion. Germany, you know, even more so Lufthansa is champion, right? Um, IAG, uh, Spain is, is champion. But but Air France, KLM, you know, those governments have other priorities, right? Like banning short-haul flights in favor of trains was not a good thing for Air, for Air France within France. And I don't even necessarily think it's a great thing for the environment. Set that aside. That's neither here nor there. It is a little funny to me because you know most people are not flying nonstop from Toulouse to Paris to Charles de Gaulle. They're flying from Toulouse to Paris to London or Toulouse to Paris to New York or Toulouse to Paris to, to Tokyo. And so now if they fly Toulouse to Istanbul to New York, well, gee, I wonder what has more carbon emissions.
2: <laughs> not, I, I just think right. it feels like there's a <laughs> lot
1: of there's a lot of political challenges for Air France and KLM, and I think it's always helpful to remind them like, hey, we buy a lot of Airbus planes. Keep a lot of, of Europeans employed, like
0: maybe don't, you know, beat us over the head with a baseball bat. Most definitely. Well, speaking of a baseball bat and people wanting to beat someone over the head with it, I think that transitions to our next topic, which is the Sky Miles status changes from Delta. Where Delta has decided to transform its Sky Miles loyalty program, which it tends to do. It tends to be the most disruptive out of all the major US carriers, maybe minus American Airlines that did something a little bit more light when it converted from AA Advantage previously to loyalty points, which is a completely different thing. Um, but we're really starting to see that the Sky Miles program is going to be setting a trend, or it is going to be the single most alienating loyalty program by essentially removing qualification criteria that involves actual travel in terms of miles flown. So starting in January, January 1st of 2024, medallion qualification dollars will be the only criteria used for getting medallion status. So that includes silver, gold, platinum, and all the way up till diamond. They'll also no longer need to at least customers will no longer need to track the miles that they fly, how many qualification miles that their tickets will earn for them, or segments for that matter. The only way uh, that through this dollar qualification program uh, that will be in part, you know, just the main contributor, also includes the actual bookings on Delta rental cars, uh, things booked through Delta.com, through Delta Vacations, um, and with the co-branded credit cards. Uh, and so really, essentially, this is a fusion of loyalty points and miles based upon actual travel and the co-branded credit cards that the airline has used in including its relationship with the banks. And now with just loyalty being so different than it was 10, 15 years ago with the consolidation, essentially mm. it's now all about revenue spend. Silver medallion qualification will be 6,000 MQDs. Gold will be 12,000. Platinum is 18,000. And diamond is $35,000.
1: But By the way, that's after tax, right? Because remember, taxes and fees don't get counted as MQDs. So if you're getting to 35K in spend, chances are your total cost of those tickets is like,
0: 41, 42 grand all in. Yeah, exactly. And so that in and of itself is a big component of this because the segmentation strategy is trying to aim to really segment the most elite spending people, Um, people who even want to access the Delta Sky Clubs. Well, those investments are coming at a cost because of the crowding issues, the American Express relationship.
1: Because too many credit cards were hawked. <laughs> right.
0: And you know, those credit cards, you know, were a huge moneymaker, especially when the fuel environment just became the way that it is. But in terms of the product and the value that they want their customers to find from it, they really want to be able to hone in on how spend tracking is kind of the the golden rule, right? It's kind of like a consulting firm or a law firm, right? Is that at the end of the day, utilization and billable hours are everything. It's what keeps the light on, right? And so for those reasons, even those individuals who have the co-branded credit cards, and this is why I call this a fusion, not only will those individuals who have Delta Sky Miles loyalty, even if they're a no-name status holder like I am, but also those who may have a delta sky miles co-branded credit card that they've had you know since 2012 you know that allows them you know the annual i guess the you know the friend pass that comes with you which i finally utilized you know this past year the point is is that the the fusion element is even though i will never be even in the tier that is going for silver medallion status i just got bumped even lower down the list in terms of the benefits because the Amex Platinum credit card that I do have, I'm only going to get six visits a year. Now, for me, that's fine because I don't fly as much as I used to. But when I go to mm. New York, I'm flying Delta in a few weeks. I'll get to use, you know, in the future, like I would be one of those uh, entrance, uh, you know, is to the uh, Amex Centurion Lounge. I've been going to those lounges since 2015. And certainly, mm. you know, they're popping up everywhere. You're starting to see that the investments in the sky clubs are a big deal and delta is also trying to make sure that you know the product even in the back of the bus is still one where people will get to enjoy digitalization like you know the free wi-fi so it's a huge overhaul um and my only opinion is regardless of what JetBlue and Alaska are doing to sort of be able to churn and and convert some people, I think it's a win-win. It's smart for those airlines because they're going to be able to attract people with their low-wilded programs, even their low-wilded programs that just don't happen to be of the same mega size that is um, Southwest, American, United, and Delta. And also, people are just going to have to contend with this. Delta is going to get away with it. I don't know what the reaction from American or United will be. I don't personally see Delta walking these things back. I don't think Delta's going to
1: walk back. I do think they may make some tweaks around the edges. Ultimately, the only thing that's going to stop Delta from doing this to people is if people stop flying them, but also, in particular, if people stop putting spend on co-brand Delta cards. I've been screaming to everyone who will listen to me, like, don't <laughs> ever try to earn Sky Miles. Like, fly Delta if you want to fly Delta, especially if you're an occasional traveler. They have a great in-flight product. I'm not here to, to denigrate that. Pre-pandemic, they were also arguably more reliable. Your bags got lost less, et cetera, lost less, et cetera. Nowadays, I think that that gap has narrowed. So if you're just solving for the in-flight experience, fly Delta, move on with your life. If you now, are... Now,
2: go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just... Uh, one thing. Okay, I understand the fusion angle, Rohan, uh, but people still are confused. I mean, did, as Bastion said, did he go too far? Did they go too far? is it like
0: well Ed Bastian is not Richard Anderson. Richard Anderson was the one that wanted to make Delta's experience in the product space the most premium. And right. that may be a little bit more I think contentious now given the fact that United has really stepped up its game. Delta has also kind of lost, um, dropped the ball on a few things like operations and, you know, a couple of other, you know, areas. You know, the Sky Miles, loyal, sorry, the Sky Team loyalty, I think, I don't think is considered to be as globally uh, respected. Useful. Yeah. Right. As, as you know, the, the sad reality is Sky Pesos, even though that could be considered kind of a... Oh,
1: forget un- Sky Pesos. We're, we're now in the range of, like, Sky Turkish Lira, Um Sky Iranian real, like whatever the world's most worthless currency is. Like, Zim- remember when the Zimbabwean do- like um, currency went through that five hundred and seventy five? Venezuela. Inflation. I mean, we have Argentina. Argentina. Exactly.
0: exactly.
1: Sky, sky polibars. Polibars. This, is, this is the this is the, this, is sky um, this is the point I was making <laughs> earlier, right? I guess I guess the um, Argentinian government just switched to U.S. dollars, so maybe yeah. that one no longer counts. Moving um, with
0: Ecuador and Panama.
1: But. Uh, yeah, again, the reason I've been telling people, hey, do not treat Delta as, as a frequent flyer program. Delta is an airline that you book if you want the experience of flying Delta or if they are the only airline that works for your schedule. Do not assume that you're going to get treated particularly well as an elite. Do not assume that you are going to earn miles that are actually worth anything, right? Mm. The audacity of Delta, like, I, I, I was, again, I recently flew from Los Angeles to Tokyo and Tokyo back to... um uh, yeah, back to back to San Francisco, and I just, I, I just, I was curious. I was, I was gonna fly United anyway, but I was just curious. Hey, what would it cost for me to get a Sky Miles ticket in economy? Right, in economy, four hundred and fifty thousand mile, uh, Sky, Sky, peso, Sky, lira, whatever you wanna use, one way, one way. Okay, well, leave it. you know, if you look at like valuations for other points and mile currencies, right? Typically, they'll tell you it's about a cent per mile. Okay, so four hundred ninety thousand. That's nine. That's nearly a million sky miles round trip for economy class. Okay, for Delta economy class, the cash ticket on that flight is like seventy-eight hundred bucks in, a, in, in Delta one. So, Delta sky miles are completely worthless. But as long as people continue to like earn them and view view earning them as being something useful, it's not going to matter right? because people aren't punishing them. I do think that there's some interesting dynamics here in terms of um, what Delta has done and what that says about Delta's strategy. Right? So if you look at how Delta has restructured, these changes seem like they're going to be relatively better for people that fly long-haul, premium cabin flights from Delta hubs, right? Um, so right, first of all, just to get thirty-five thousand, you're going to have to book like there's literally probably no way even for like a road warrior consultant who flies economy, their company's um, dime. Uh, even full fare economy, to get to 35000 right? Like, let's say you're spending $800 a segment. You still got to be flying 70, 80, you know, or like 50, 60 segments at $800 per just to, just to make it in, there, right? So the thing that's really interesting to me is um, one of the things that I think that United does that is really smart relative to both American and Delta is they make it a lot easier if you are in an outstation United, like a non-United hub or non-United market, to earn status, right? So um, living in DFW, right, um, the natural choice is to switch to American Airlines. I'm not going to do that um, in part because I have self-respect, but also, <laughs> that's a joke, that's a joke, um, but but also because um, United actually makes it reasonably easy for me to re-earn 1K status as someone who's flying out of DFW because, you know, if I want to fly from DFW to anywhere except for Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, Newark, and a couple other cities, I'm taking a connecting flight, right? So... Um, you know the way United's 1K tier 1K tier works is you can either spend $18,000 and uh, fly 54 segments on United Metal, or you can spend $24,000 and then there's no minimum segment requirement. So the $24,000 tier captures people who are hub captives and who spend a lot of cash. The $18,000 tier is for people like me um, who live in non-United hubs. But you know if I fly United everywhere. Right, that's 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 like 13 round trips, right? And I'm basically there right? 13 round trips, two flights in each direction. So the thing that's really interesting is this is sending a signal, right? And if you look at the the, the Sky Club changes again, something very similar, right? If you're only flying Delta occasionally, like Rohan, or you are only flying Delta, you're flying Delta out of a hub, right? You're gonna you're gonna visit visit the Sky Club like once or twice on your routing. But let's say I want I, I'm I'm flying. A round trip out of DFW to a non Delta hub. Let's say I'm going DFW to Washington, right? So I go DFW to Atlanta, Atlanta to Washington, Washington to Atlanta, Atlanta to DFW. If I want to visit the Sky Club um, on my on my sort of like three outbound or, or on, on my outbound legs, basically, so in DFW, in Atlanta, in Washington, and then in, and then in Washington again, and then Atlanta again. That's four visits right there. Four of the six that I'm qualified. Right, mm. um, you know, qualified for quote unquote, and um, and so so I think it's really interesting, right? Like the people who don't live in delta hubs are like relatively punished more by this, and so the question becomes, can the other carriers? Um, first of all, wh- why are they doing that? But then second, can the other carriers capitalize on, on this, especially because? Now, if you are in a Delta hub, but you know you're not going to get to 35 grand worth of spend, does it make sense to say, hey, you know, screw it, I'm going to flip over to United? I think United, if they don't make changes, is actually really well positioned here to pick up a lot of those travelers that need a global network, but are in a Delta hub. Um, and American, I think, is is a little bit less well positioned, but I think loyalty points at least is a little more flexible for how you earn and especially what you earn from spending on the co-branded credit card. So both United and American. They haven't even announced what they're, you know, it, if they're going to do anything to like peel off Delta customers. Which I think but, is smart. Which I think is smart. Right, you, you, don't need to, you don't need to poke the bear, but just by just by attrition, right? I think they're going to pick up a bunch right. of new one Ks and executive platinums in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Minneapolis, Salt Lake City. Yeah. Um, and so I think you said, yeah, Delta's not going back on this, maybe, but, but the part of the reason that Delta's recent expansion, right, into Boston, into Seattle, um, their buildup of New York. The reason that worked, right, is that they have these captive hubs in Atlanta. They have these captive hubs in Minneapolis, in, in, in Detroit, um, and in Salt Lake City, right? That's where Delta is profitable, by the way. Like, if you if you were to do a line-by-line accounting of all of Delta's routes, especially in the post-pandemic world where corporate contracts are a little less locked in and a little bit less Proportionally of traffic, Delta makes almost all of its profit in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Minneapolis, in Salt Lake City. They are profitable in New York now. They weren't pre They weren't for a long time pre-pandemic, but they are profitable in New York now. But it's lower margin for sure. And Boston is probably break even, and Seattle they're probably losing money. arguably, right? At least is like how I would kind of stack up the chip. Same with Los Angeles, right? Because that's just a bloodbath for everyone. You lose ten percent of your elites in atlanta um, to you know united in america you lose 10 percent of your elites in seattle like that's non-trivial yeah so i'm curious if if, if you read those changes the same way or if you saw that same pattern in the data
0: well you're you're correct correct. i actually also think that you talk about delta doubling down in even some of these smaller cities where pre-pandemic they considered like san jose california a focus city that never ended up happening right but there was not not non-significant and Austin Raleigh-Durham.
1: Uh, well, okay. is also a fake focus city pre-pandemic. They actually just added their first two pure point-to-point routes a couple months ago with Vegas and Orlando. Sure. Um, Austin, the hilarious thing is they, they called it a focus city and then American actually built a focus city. Right, um,
2: exactly. It's
0: insane how much American capacity is in Austin now, right? Well, the point I'm trying to make is, is that back in 2009, 2008, when pretty much every U.S. major carrier and low-cost carrier announced check bag fees, Southwest abstained, spent a ton of marketing in check bags fly, fly free. And they gained like 1% market share, I remember, something like that, which was, again, not insignificant. And so the competitive response, I think, is interesting. And I was kind of alluding that to that earlier in this episode where I think American and United are going to just kind of stay put. In fact, I hope that the days of United just emulating whatever Delta did without fully baking out what it could be part, you know, of the United strategy. Well,
1: the thing is they have an opportunity here, right? Like, United and American, like, yes, you can raise your spending thresholds. And, like, as a United 1K who's going to hit both that 18 and that 24, like, selfishly, like, push it up a little bit, thin the herd out, fine, whatever. But, like, if they keep their structure... They have an opportunity here that is pretty meaningful. And as long as they don't go all the way to 35, 40 K and, you know, 350 grand on a Delta reserve card to, to get to, get to, to Delta, like um, uh, Delta's top tier, they have an opportunity here. And, you know, are they going to look at gift, gift horse in the, in the mouth? A cynic would say yes. But I, you know, I think like they have a chance here to do something that's actually pretty meaningful in terms of kneecapping Delta in a lot of ways yep. while picking up profitable
0: flyers. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. Like that's why, you know, last episode we talked about Lufthansa coming to Raleigh-Durham and to Minneapolis, St. Paul, like those can be significant in terms of being able to lure away some of the, the Sky Team loyal traffic for those reasons. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I really am curious to know the competitive response from the JetBlue and Alaska side of things. Uh, what are your reactions on that? Because I, I, I'm i not exactly sure what to think. I think it makes sense for those airlines given their strategies. And let's be honest, Alaska way more than, jet, than Hawaiian, or, or sorry, JetBlue. Alaska has partnerships with all kinds of airlines. They're in one world. Redemptions are still really good on them. And JetBlue is a little bit less, so you can just kind of like earn miles flying Hawaiian, but like it's not a good redemption. Less like mint product, you know, there's not good redemption on mint, it's a distance based one, so it might as well be like Avios, right? So, what are your thoughts on those? I mean, they're, they're not also unimportant markets in competitive areas like Boston and Seattle and LA and New York,
1: yeah. Well, I, I think JetBlue is really interesting. I, I think in New York, JetBlue can't compete because it is really so much about the, the global carrier presence and. The scale across JFK and Laguardia that that JetBlue just can't compete with, especially after the unwinding of the Northeast Alliance. But I think in Bo- in Boston, yeah, it's a little bit more of a pitched battle, and, and people like Delta. And I know a lot of people, I used to live in Boston. I know a lot of people who are like, "Oh, Delta's the best airline. They've they've got a lot of nonstop flights. I get to earn my Sky Miles." Before I disabuse them of that notion that those are worth anything, and and so like in 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 Boston, right. There is sort of some real healthy competition. There is a competing factor in New York. United is, is obviously the competition across the river. There's some people who don't want to fly travel out of Newark for a variety of reasons, so there's a little bit more of a, a balance there. But in in Boston, I think Delta, Delta JetBlue is a threat. I think in Seattle, though, Alaska is a huge threat because Mileage Plan is is by far the program that has retained the most like actual value in its miles. Um, the MVP sort of status tiers are excellent um the product is really good and unless you fly trans-pacific there's no like alaska has better frequency on every domestic and short haul and medium haul routing virtually right except to delta hubs so i think if you're in seattle um i think absolutely uh, alaska is going to clean up on this and the, the question for delta becomes when you've lost six diamond members off of every domestic routing um, how does that impact prop- profitability of your domestic routes that feed your trans-Pacific network, right? It's all, it's all interconnected. Um, I think Delta went too far. Like, that, 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 that's, that's my honest take here, right? And I was the first person, you can go back into, you know, back to 2014, and I was the person saying, hey, switching to revenue-based frequent flyer programs makes sense, right? People don't like it, but it makes sense, especially because the Milo system was really easy to, to game in, in, the, in a world of global... Um, airline route networks. Like, p- p- people forget that when they f- when these airlines first introduced the miles flown system, right? 75,000 miles or 100,000 miles in a year, that's really hard to do in the United States. If you're flying 100,000 miles a year, that means you're flying 20 round-trip transcons or some multiple of that on short-haul flights, right? And then and, and this is back in a world where, you know, there's flights in London and Tokyo, but not 100 global destinations. Nowadays, right, to get to 100,000 miles, you do five round trips to Asia, you're at a hundred thousand miles, right? In economy. So the mileage system by itself was broken by the fact that these carriers shifted into global networks. But mileage plus revenue and some balance between the two is valuable because you know ultimately what are you trying to drive? You're trying to you're trying to drive loyalty. And you're trying to drive loyalty on the first order in terms of um in terms of people actually choosing Delta when they fly and trying to drive loyalty in the second order, which is I'm going to organize my other purchases the rest of my financial life around flying Delta. And why do you do that? You do that because um, it makes the travel experience, if you travel a lot, much better if you're flying on Delta, but also if you have the co-brand credit card, you do it because in theory, you're supposed to be able to get free or reasonably priced travel, um, particularly both the aspirational, like I get to take my girlfriend in business class. um, Also the, like, I get to fly my family of four down to Orlando. By devaluing Sky Miles, they took away the I should put my spend on a Delta credit card because I earned Sky Miles. Yeah. And I think people are waking up to this in a way that they haven't previously. Now, um, those those referral fees into affiliate, you know, programs for the Delta reserve cards help balance that out because I think the Points and Miles blogosphere and ecosystem um, doesn't do a good enough job of saying you should not do this, right? Because they, they have a financial incentive not in the other direction. Now I think there are people who, you know, Gary left at you from the wing. Um, there are others, of course, who are you know honest uh, honest about the fact that like yeah Delta is you know not a worthwhile program to earn miles in. Right. But they've taken that piece away. Um, now they're making it a lot harder to justify loyalty to Delta. Right. There's a lot of people that spend between eighteen and thirty-five thousand dollars a year in in Atlanta, right, on Delta flying, and you got to figure that at least some of them are going to be like, okay, would I rather be platinum on Delta and be even more screwed over in the in the, in, the, in the game here, or would I rather go become a top tier elite at United or American or JetBlue or I mean not JetBlue but Alaska or whoever, right? right. It's, not an, it's not a it's not a layup, um, and so I, I
2: think I think they went too far and they were too arrogant. And Alaska's mileage plan is has been praised, right? It's generous. Uh, yeah, you got generous rewards redemption options. I don't know about Southwest, but it's really good.
1: Southwest is fine like for for domestic flying Southwest is not bad. It's simple to understand and because they right. don't, they don't devalue as aggressively um even though I would say 10 years ago it was by far the worst. I would say now just by virtue of every other airline devaluing consistently, it's better off. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? Is the is the airlines have have manufactured this economy of um you know, a bunch of people putting a bunch of spend onto their co-brand credit cards that is you know, essentially pure profit that flows through to their bottom line. But the reason that works, the reason that entire chain works is because at the end of the tunnel, there is still an ability to redeem for premium cabin seats. And I think like, you know, they every every business tries to, you know, squeeze more profitability out of everything, right? So I'm not I'm not one to sit here and, and, and you know, and dump on the profit motive. But I think if they're not careful, over time, as they continue to, de- if they devalue this too much, they risk, out, right? Because, because okay, when I'm getting like less than uh, like um, you know, so so if I if I think uh, I don't I don't know I think you might have stepped away when I was telling wing about my Tokyo Haneda booking experience, but I just I looked at Delta um, Sky Miles for Tokyo Haneda to Los uh, Los Angeles to Tokyo Haneda, and they were asking for four hundred and ninety five thousand Delta Sky Miles one way in economy class for a ticket that I think was like thirteen hundred bucks round trip. Right? So what, what is that? Point two, point one cents um one mm. of uh, a, a value per mile and you earn a dollar per mile on, on your Delta credit card? Right? Why in the world would I would I you know earn Sky Miles to get 0.2 cents or 0.1 cents when I could be getting two percent cash back or I could be earning Costco rewards or something, right? Like at a certain point, when you remove the ability to actually redeem the miles, the miles become worthless, and then your co brand credit card, the, the the thing that Delta beats its chest about. You Know 1% of US GDP flows through Delta Sky Miles credit cards. That's not forever, guys. Like, yeah, like just completely flog the thing that actually drives that value, the the thing that precedes that value, right? Like, literally any reasonable redemption value, Delta immediately moves stuff out, right? There's a a way in which if you booked X, like starting in Mexico, you booked a routing, so you want to do like Mexico City, Los Angeles, Sydney, or something like that, that was a Mm -hmm. lot cheaper to redeem for than. You know, LA to Sydney directly, right? The same exact seat was cheaper if you added a connection in from Mexico City. Guess what Delta just devalued, right? Like, first of all, you, you can't get a Delta award seat ex the United States, but now you can't even, like, fly to another country, <laughs> spend dozens of extra hours. Like, it's just... Delta is a very profitable airline, right? Um, it is run by very smart people, but I think there is a degree of arrogance towards its customers right. here. Um
0: that they will end up regretting
1: is, is my take here.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, look, we know that American has really de-emphasized its sales team, right? They don't see the corporate traveler doing the six day a week roared warrior like they once did. It's a lot more of the blended leisure and travel or bleisure as they call it. Um, it could be that this is just Delta's way of, of, of sort of taking on that gamble, right? Um, just in a different kind of way. Uh, American did it more on the sales, through the sales team towards the revenue side. It could be that Delta is going through the revenue side, um, you know, in order to sort of be able to conserve whatever sales it needs to segment. I, I don't really know. that. That's just well, to,
1: to be fair, if, I, if I'm being charitable to Delta, right, like the elite the elite bucket definitely has gotten too big relative to the benefit that most people actually value, especially on domestic flying, which is upgrades. Right. Um, now again, for, for me, right. I actually put a little less value on upgrades, particularly on domestic flying. And the thing that matters to me is, um, the ability to always like call someone and get my phone answered, my phone call answered in five minutes, the ability to get protected when I'm running late on it. Right. Like, like I, for, for how I travel and, the degree to which I I have a a grounding in the airline industry, I value a different set of things, right? But a lot of people, why they enjoy being elite is, I'm going to get upgraded, or I'm traveling with my wife and kids, and they're going to get upgraded with me, right? So in that world, I do think that Delta probably did have to do something to cut down on the number of diamonds um, that it had. I think the thing that they, they erred in, in particular, at least when it comes to the status changes, is... Like, I, I'm, you know, people will listen to this podcast and increasingly accuse me of being a United show. But I, I think what United has done with its two-tier structure is really, really smart, right? Like, why don't you have a lower tier that rewards the number of flights you've taken while still getting to a pretty big threshold of revenue, right? Maybe you had a, you have a 25K and 70 flights on Delta,
0: right? Mm. Because
1: if you're in a hub, that means that you are religiously flying Delta. And if you're outside of a hub, that means you're picking Delta over a more convenient nonstop.
0: Yeah.
1: How does that help me? Because ultimately, right, the thing that people hate is like, oh, I'm in, I'm in Atlanta and there are 75 other elites in front of me, so I'm not even getting that upgrade to Comfort plus. But if you're in DFW, right, the upgrade list is a lot friendlier, right? Um, heck, I was on a, a Baltimore to Boston flight last week. And I have Delta Silver status, which, by the way, this is going to sound crazy. I don't know how I got Delta Silver status.
0: <laughs> well, right? hold on. Hold up. Like, do you remember that a lot of airlines like allowed people to buy up to status or defer status from pre-pandemic?
1: Never in my life have I had Delta status. Never in my life have I done a delta status match. Like the only possible explanation I can think of is I put a lot of spend onto my MX Platinum and they like threw it out there. I guess, maybe. But but outside of that, like I, I again, I the the pre-pandemic, I took one or two flights on Delta per year. Last year I took Six total flights on Delta spent like eight hundred bucks, I think, or like maybe like two thousand, right? I don't know how I got to silver. I, I was not at the MQM threshold. The last flight on Delta I took last year was in November. I, I literally look at it, remember looking at it, thinking I could either go for Delta status or American status in addition to my United one K. And uh, I live in Dallas. I'm about to move to Dallas Fort Worth, so let me go for um, uh, American status. So. That, that, that's a sidebar. I don't know how I got Delta status. Thank you to whoever at Delta uh, either made that mistake in my account, though I guess by uh, after hearing me rant, maybe maybe they'll retract that from me. Um, but I, got, I have Delta Silver status. I was flying from Baltimore, Washington to Boston, and I got upgraded, right? Um, and the reason is it's an outstation to a slightly weaker hub for Delta in the case of Boston. And as a Silver, I got upgraded into first class. Light loads, fine, whatever, right? The point I'm making is that when you're in an outstation, those outstation flights where people will be really happy to get upgraded and they'll feel like, "Wow, it's really valuable that I got upgraded," you're you're not full of diamonds on that flight. You're full of diamonds on Atlanta to DFW, but you're not always full of diamonds on DFW to Atlanta. Yeah. Right? There's, yeah, there's a there's a, differ- a differentiation there. Right.
2: Right. Mm.
1: So, <laughs> um,
2: well, bottom you- line, <laughs> bottom line, guys. I don't know. Uh, Delta, Sky, Sky Miles Advantage Miles. No Michael no 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 lost. sky
1: pesos, Sky Reals, this
2: guy's sky Lira. uh have, I mean can, can he, we think of any
1: of the other other least least valuable yeah. kind of sky boulevards. Does this
2: have any bearing on, on credit card reward programs? Is this like not related?
1: Hundred
2: percent. It's it, like
1: it, and by the way, you know, in the last couple of days we're recording on Wednesday, September twenty seventh. Um and Ed Bastion he, has come yeah. out. He's he walked back, yeah. right? You, you know you wanna know what happened? Like this, they're break. not gonna talk about this publicly, but I I bet you credit card signups for the Delta Reserve and for some of the lower tier Delta cards, um, Delta Platinum, have been down. Application numbers have come down. The Amex Mm. Platinum probably took a hit, and uh, the the folks over at American Express were like, hey guys, like, wink wink, nudge nudge, like, you kind of went a little far with this. You want to pull
0: back a little bit.
1: Of of course they are, because if you're, again, if I were Chase, or if I were, um, Barclays City. city. Have, yeah. yeah, I would be ramping up. I would be. T- I would be crowing from the moon about how little award availability Delta has. About how, like, right? They're they're, they're right. missing they're missing a trick here because there's a, there's a one time opportunity, especially in the TikTok influencer sort of economy era where a lot of people get memed into buying tra- into applying for travel credit cards. Mm. They're completely missing trick to um, to like make a point at Delta's expense and capture some share. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com slash shop, where you'll be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. That's airwaysmag.com slash shop. Right. By the way, world's 10 least valuable currencies, uh, cheapest currencies in the world, The Iranian Rial, the Vietnamese Dong, the Indonesian Rupiah, the Ghanaian Frank, uh, the Laotian Kip, uh, the Sierra Leonean Leone, which is really cool, uh, the Uzbekistani som, the Paraguayan Guarani, um, the Cambodian riel, and the Ugandan Shilling. So we've got Sky Rials, Sky Dongs, um, which is my personal favorite, (laughs) Sky Rupiah, Sky Franks, um, Sky Kips sky shillings um, that one's that one has some some fun uh uh pun value with all the uh, <laughs> credit card blogs yeah no I I, 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 I I like i'm normally the guy who's like hey this looks passenger on friendly but it makes business sense from a from a like strategy perspective like there's a reason why they're doing this yeah. and i think delta messed up.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of Sky Pesos, actually, you know, this could be kind of a interesting segue into how Delta's trans-border joint venture partner, Edo Mexico, you know, now with Category 2 restrictions, which effectively banned from it co-chairing with Edo Mexico, uh, much less any Mexican carrier from co-chairing with U.S. airlines or other airlines, and for being able to change and adjust their capacity or gauge on any transporter markets, aside from adjusting down, well now, Mexico has been able to kind of reshift some of its capacity. And I know that pre-pandemic, there was definitely a lot of heavy and tight coordination between Delta and Aeromexico for you know, the route structure uh, between the US and Mexico. But now you have this very interesting situation where um, it really kind of all depends on where the relationship is going to go on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting, right?
0: Um,
1: for a while, the Mexican carriers were pre- prevented from being able to add new routes or new capacity into the United States. That's part of what being dropped down into Category 2 um, enabled. I think Delta was probably the hardest hit because they have the strongest partners out of the border with an equity investment and a joint venture um, uh, with, with Aeromexico or Aeromexico. And... So I think um, it's not a surprise. Like I don't, I don't think anyone was sitting here thinking that like Mexican airspace was unsafe. There's you know, U.S. carriers continuously flying into um, into uh, Mexico, um, Mexican carriers flying out. Um, again, someone who was a little bit more cynical about the U.S. about the U.S. government and its motives might have said like, "Hey, Mexico was one of the few international markets that was doing okay during COVID." Um, and it was where the demand first resumed, and so until the U.S. carriers were on solid footing, I wonder if they slow-rolled a little bit to prevent... Again, that would be a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but um, what I will say is that it is interesting to see as soon as this got uh, reverted, Aeromexico announced capacity increases on a bunch of its routings, Um, right? It's still down a bunch of routes from 2019. Um, Viva Aerobus Aerobus just uh, announced... Um, a bunch of new flying into, um, into the United States. Um, we of course have the New Mexicana, which is uh, really the funniest airline story to, to come out of Latin America so far this year and, and there's a lot of competition for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I I think, I think it's gonna, it's gonna be interesting view Airbus Airbus um, just announced service to from Monterey, which is their hub to Austin, Texas, to Denver, Colorado, to Miami, Florida, Oakland, and Orlando. Denver
2: just confirmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Delta and Mexico have. Do they have still a thousand weekly flights between the U.S. and? Yeah, right. Once we have yeah. the,
0: the access we're looking for on that capacity.
2: Ro- Rohan,
1: keep, keep 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 giving some analysis. I'll do some back of the envelope math while you um, while while while
0: you do that. Well, with Mexico, do we believe also that Delta has a very interesting strategy between each of its hubs? You see that to a lot of the leisure markets in Mexico, there's a ton of Delta operated aircraft flying from places like Kansas City and Pittsburgh and Raleigh-Durham and Cincinnati to Cancun, for example, or from Mm. Atlanta to some of those leisure markets. But business markets like Detroit to Querétaro, for example, or Salt Lake City to Guadalajara tend to be operated by Aeromexico um, because (laughs) Aeromexico. yeah
2: and you can earn miles right with earn. right so what was the number a thousand weekly flights thousand week- weekly flights between the US and Latin America I mean that's that's the initial that's the, the agreement between the US and, and Latin America between the US and Mexico no Latin America
1: uh, Latin America yes um, I think it's 750 ish between the US and Mexico um, okay about about. Five hundred ish, uh, four hundred ish a week from Delta and four hundred, like three fifty ish a week from Air Mexico. Though they're gonna um, up their capacity, given given the the upgrade to, to Category Two right before the uh, slots get controlled at uh, Benito Juarez airports um, in favor of an airport that's not even in Mexico City. So that, that's a great that's that's great news for everyone involved.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's weird. Yes. Well, you can read all note. about it.
0: On uh, that note. Um, I think we should wrap up this topic just because talking about Delta uh, SkyMiles low, if you changed it right before dinner, makes me want to lose my appetite. <laughs> um, but uh, any other comments that either of you have on this uh, Delta news? It seems to be just getting quite, uh, quite the press.
1: Well, I think the one thing that's interesting is that relative to 2019 or 2017, the Mexican low-cost carriers... Um, are operating, they're, they're much stronger relatively within the Mexico market um, than they were pre-pandemic, yeah. right? Um, if you look at, so obviously Interjet died out, but Viva Aerobus and Volaris are both much stronger and much more powerful airlines than they were pre-pandemic. Right. Um, and they really cut their teeth, obviously, during the pandemic um, in, in kind of rebuilding as Mexico was one of the first countries to really rebuild its post-pandemic, capacity. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens because Mexico has been a growth market and a profitable market for U.S. carriers um, and for U.S. ULCCs. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I think it'll also be interesting to see if the Viva Aerobus um, Allegiant joint venture stops being held up because it's absurd to me that you can argue that Delta and Aero Mexico are allowed to have a, a joint venture, but a, a legion who doesn't even fly to Mexico and the other who right. can't like that's it's right. a little, it's a little absurd that you're going to allow one and not the other.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But that
2: should go, that, that should move forward. I think I read somewhere.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it will. I think it will move forward. And I think you will see that um, the, 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 the Mexican carriers holding their own a little bit more beyond Aero Mexico. Right, it's not just going to be them carrying water to and from the, from the U.S.
2: I don't know if you want to just talk about Tokyo Haneda, but the formal process of reallocating the, those slots has not begun. Everyone A- hasn't has begun. The, I- I twenty-nine. Think we,
1: I think we save it until all the all the final docket decisions are in, um, yeah. until every
2: airline has has
1: applied. Um, but we're watching it. Um, we've talked about it before on the podcast. Um, I just, we're not even Tokyo Haneda. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: It's <laughs> um, always be drama. with like Tokyo and Delta?
1: You you mean to tell me that nine thousand dollar one way tickets from Portland to Tokyo Haneda and economy
0: weren't meant to ever be sold to anyone? Oh, I thought those <laughs> were going. I thought I thought the bloggers yes. were advertising that that route as a deal. <laughs> you know, considering the Sky Bullet fares. Well,
1: here he, here's the thing, right? Yeah. I, I think it still might have been cheaper than what Delta would have been asking for on that non on. Uh, even a one-stop routing export London economy. So yeah. you never know. Right. Hey, okay. can't look a good deal in the mouth. Right.
0: <laughs> well, thank you all for for joining us today. It's been a fun discussion on all of the changes with Delta, as well as touching upon the Air Canada, Air France, KLM orders, and a little bit on the slots, dramas, and the what have yous that always take place in this exciting industry. Helen, do, do we have any other information for our subscribers, for uh, listeners of the Airways podcast, Airways News, etc.?
2: We have a few interviews coming up. You'll hear about them probably next week. And uh, nothing else. Uh, if you guys want to subscribe to the Airways uh, podcast, you can do so at airwaysmagazine.substack.com
0: thanks everyone for joining us today and
1: don't forget to leave us a review on apple podcasts um, or wherever you listen to your podcasts if i pull up the airways podcast on apple right now i just want to see how many of you have actually left us a review um the last time i looked at it was not so many of you so if you're listening to this podcast and you don't leave us a review again i'm going to be very angry and sad um not not necessarily in that order uh so, yeah, go, go go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, go to Spotify, go wherever you listen to your podcast, just leave us a review, subscribe to the Substack, subscribe to the magazine. Um, we got some cool stuff coming down the pike. I'm back from Japan. Um, so, yeah, onward and upwards from here.
0: Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys.